Welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. I'm your host, Smokey Joe Sanson. Today's episode, and the winner is dot dot dot. We had a little competition, we made a little black dog jump over cans of sparkling water. We asked the sparkling community, how many cans do you think she can jump over? And then, out of the correct answers, we're going to draw a winner or multiple winners. Who knows? Now, I'm clearly not going to tell you the winner in the beginning of the episode. That's not how it's done. I've been in America four years now, and I know a thing or two about capitalism, and uh, you can't tell them the answer uh, right away. You know? Kylie Jenner said something really bitchy to someone else, and they cut it off at the end of the sentence, and you don't know what she's going to say, and then you have to wait until the end of the episode to... I mean, look, sometimes it's not even in that episode, you know? They just make it seem like it's going to be in that episode, and then you get to the end of the episode, and it's like, oh, it's going to be on the next episode. But it's going to be on this episode. It's just not going to be in the beginning of the episode. I'm just going to stall. I'm just going to close my eyes now and see what comes out. Okay, so the first thing that comes to mind is that... (laughs) Okay. Ten years ago, I acted in a play called And the Winner Is Dot Dot Dot. (laughs) And it was a murder mystery restaurant thing. And I was cast as the murderer. And I'm going to tell you right now, it wasn't a good performance. Even though I have this very, very strong hoarding uh, instinct, there is a sort of happiness that cameras weren't so ubiquitous. Social media wasn't so ubiquitous. It wasn't actually recorded in any way. Being a hoarder, it's tricky because, like here in America, sometimes I'll walk down the street and someone will give me a flyer advertising the sale of some $800,000 condo on some forgotten intersection in Ballard that I've never even, you know, that I'm never going to go back to. So it's the most unimportant piece of paper ever. But it's hard for me to throw that away because my brain can always come up with a scenario where any piece of scrap paper is the difference between life and death. And I mean, honestly, it's a, it has to do with narcissism. And I mean, this is kind of a problem because in life, we do have to have the skill of looking at an object and deciding, hey, do I throw this away or do I keep it? Which is why there's a television shows, you know? <laughs> it's funny. I know that there's a television show called Hoarders, but then I recently saw a TV commercial for Hoarders and it said something to the effect of, The original obsessive-compulsive disease hoarding uh, behavior show. Like, implying that there are a bunch of other shows that do that, that, uh, you know, explore that world of hoarders. Anyway, if you don't, if you can't decide properly, it's hard. It's hard to live your life. And I, I mean, I'm a sort of high-functioning hoarder, I guess, where I am. I can tell if something is going to really be important and then that's sort of hoarded in a in a more accessible space and then the stuff where I can clearly tell that it's a low probability that this will become important, that gets hoarded into a box that gets um, put in a sort of less accessible space and then when those spaces fill up, it's sort of shipped off to to the old Swedish backlog the old uh, deep archives in the old country, my mom's attic in my dad's basement or garage or whatever. And um, man, sometimes I get little emails from my mom that she has 
started going through my boxes and she's all like what's in these boxes <laughs> and she really um yeah my pulse always goes up a little bit um thinking back on when i acted in that play look it was like this there was a restaurant called not me in shanghai weird name and then there was this script and we rehearsed a couple of times not really enough times and i didn't really know my script at all and the audience is seated at around 10 di dinner tables having dinner and the play is playing out amongst them physically we're walking between the tables and stuff i mean yeah during appetizer there's something where it goes completely black and one of the characters disappears and then that character is like found bloody in a somewhere i can't even remember it was like 12 years ago and then during dessert there's this thing where the murder the thing is revealed and um and i was the murderer and the way it was set up was that we all all six or seven of the actors were standing in a line and there was some sort of announcement like they want the murderer to step forward and i got really nervous and i was too scared to step forward and the counterintuitive thing about that is that it, all the other actors loved it because the script called for them to feign stepping forward and they were all like these really self-centered, really crazy, big acting dreams, kind of washed up expats milling around in Shanghai. And they all made it, really owned it. <laughs> so I'm like standing there all nervous. And then they are fain <laughs> taking a step forward and then looking around, making sure everyone's looking on them. And then they take the step back and they don't do it. And they just kept doing that. And I, yeah too much time was spent um with us doing that where i didn't step forward and then eventually i stepped forward and you know it wasn't good it um i have a i'm a good actor and but i don't have a good range that's how i would describe it i did a little bit of acting a couple of plays a little bit of stage theater a little bit of film you know a little bit of camera stuff um good actor not a good range like i'm very good at um let's see a young guy upset about something unimportant like that, that kind of character, I'm really good at it. Or um, young teenager frustrated with the current circumstances. Also, totally inside of my wheelhouse. Or um, my thing I'm best at is young guy is disappointed with his friend and walks away from his friend slowly, looks back disappointed one last time at his friend, shakes his head in disappointment, and then slowly walks off. And you can really feel how how sad he is that the friendship ended unclear why but you know that that's that's a scene that's really in my wheelhouse uh but this which is like uh young joachim wears a bow tie and is a murderer in some sort of kitsch futurist theater experiment it was firmly outside of my range and i couldn't do it well and i think i, I was stressed out and my mouth was real dry oh god my mouth is a little bit dry now too just from thinking about it um you know, when I worked at that sushi place, Sushi Kapitamura, Edward, my coworker, he would always say that when I got stressed out, I looked like a newborn hamster. And this one time, this one time, right in the beginning when I started working there, um, it was like one of the first weeks, it's announced that our restaurant was nominated for the James Beard Award. And that means that people flock to the restaurant. 
and I was new, and that night became the night when I sold more. I, I sold four thousand dollars worth of food and beverage in one evening, and I was very busy. And Edward kept saying that for four hours straight, I looked like a newborn hamster. And the thing about that, what it means is that I'm already this kind of pale, pasty kind of like white white guy, and then when a lot of blood rushes to my face, you get this really like plump, firm, sort of dark pink. Um, newborn rodent sort of thing. Looks real healthy. It's real juicy, but it's uh, it's kind of a weird look. So when I was the murderer in that play, I'm definitely sure that that's what I looked like for the whole thing. And then at the end, I was too nervous to step forward. And then I eventually stepped forward. And I just kind of walked around this restaurant all clunky, doing this monologue about how I committed the murder. And I remember there was a pillar in the middle of the restaurant, and I just sort of hung on to the pillar, like a tree-hugging, sort of just hanging, hugging this pillar, <laughs> just sort of looking down at the floor, saying all my lines. And it was like not even acting, like not even, yeah. It wasn't anything. It was just me reading lines verbatim, probably with my eyes closed, you know? And um, even though I'm a hoarder, I'm very happy that... Um, that performance really faded into the background radiation of the world, and, and no one even remembers it today. But um, I did do some good acting things. Like I, um, the thing that I am always my girlfriend makes fun of me for always bragging about this. But I was the I was cast as the lead in this play. It was set up by Michael Dara. He's like this marketing um, Australian guy, professional. This is about 2008 or something, maybe a little bit earlier. And um, so he needs a young person because he wants to put up this play called Beautiful Thing. It's kind of, it's semi-famous. I think it was first a play and then it became a movie. It's a sort of semi-famous movie, especially in the gay community. And he wants to do this play in China because, you know, I mean... There's a there's an argument to be made that Chinese people don't really get it with the whole like gay people and being inclusive and being nice and everything. I would say that it's actually a very different situation where in Western countries it's more from a Christian, like Christianity sort of feeds a lot of homophobia and why maybe people are closed off to it and being negative and everything. Whereas in China it's more fed by... Um, I mean, maybe a sort of communist social conservatism, but also just in a very practical way, the one-child policy and people having very few kids and people having a strong family focus. If you only have one kid and you really need that kid to, um, and your bloodline is really important to you and you really need that kid to keep the bloodline alive, if your kid comes out as gay, it's really hard to be like, okay, fine, we won't have biological grandkids, I guess. So we we want to. He wants to do this play, and it's a play where this um, teenager has to come to terms with his sexuality. And I am twenty one, and I mean I'm thirty three years old right now, and people think I'm sixteen. So when I was twenty one, I tell you, I could pass for a teenager. Like Michael was in his forties and didn't know a lot of youngsters because he wasn't a creep. And me, I was just like a 21-year-old who was friends mostly with people in their 30s or older. So I was just this guy hanging around. So he approached me and was like, you want to be in this play? So, um, <laughs> so I show up to this reading and I just sort of cold read the script. And he just looks at me and he's like, 
we have our Jamie. <laughs> he loved it. And it was so good. And then that was definitely in my wheelhouse because it was just like this frustrated, nervous, awkward young guy who's like pissed off at his mom, pissed off at his friends, kind of has a crush on this boy, you know. And then this is something that I just hang on to because it's like the one good thing I've done in life where we raised awareness on... Because Michael really had this theory that this was the first time a sort of gay-themed play was staged in mainland China. And I mean, that might be true. And we could do it maybe because the higher-ups didn't have an opinion yet. They, didn't, they, hadn't, they hadn't been asked the question if it's like allowed to do a gay-themed play. Because two months later, someone did... Um, Madame Butterfly, like some sort of take on a take on an opera, on a thing turned into an LGBT, uh, you know, interpretation of Chinese history, like a fusion of a lot of different things. But it was like the main plot line was some sort of, I didn't even look into it too much, but it was the main thing was some sort of queer person. And while they did the play, here's how I was told the story, and I'm sure this is embellished. While the play was going, not the first night or the second night, but something like the third night, uh, people in uniforms, like military motherfuckers, walked into the theater hall and shut it down mid-play. And they were like, no, nah, you can't do this gay shit. And everyone had to go home and they couldn't do it again. And then maybe, you know, no more gay shit happened on stage in China for a while. Who knows? I mean, it's a tricky, it's tricky business out there. But we got away with it by just doing it quickly, doing it under the radar. We did a lot of things about it that was under the radar. Like, we didn't actually sell tickets. We just did a suggested donation of 100 kwai, about 10 bucks. And we sold out every single night. And I think everyone donated. And, and that money was supposed to go to the Chi Hung Foundation, which it did. I'm sorry I threw in the word supposed to in there. It's just because my friend, my... Uh, uh, you know, my lawyer always says that he always made fun of the whole situation and said that that the the old the Chi Hung Foundation money was more going to like, you know, um, maybe the director's cocaine fund or something. But that wasn't actually the case. Uh, Mr. Lawyer was just being facetious. Um, that money went to the Chi Hung Foundation, which, uh, you know, but it, Michael always told me that it wasn't really about like... Um, buying 10,000 condoms for gay guys in Western China. It was more just about the awareness thing, you know, because there is a time and a place for awareness. Like the concept of awareness loses its meaning after a certain point. Like in Sweden, people still talk about raising awareness for breast cancer and stuff. And it's and I say that with great trepidation because my mom is a breast cancer survivor who wears pink ribbons on her you know she wears like a breast cancer awareness pin to raise awareness and it's like bro yes we need to donate money to that stuff we need to research we need to take care of everyone we need to like come up with cures treatments all that stuff but the idea of just awareness in sweden of breast cancer at some point there the concept of awareness has played out its role be that as it may the concept of awareness of that gay people can be normal people in China in 2008. I think that was a worthy cause. And I will always hold on to that as the one good thing I did in life. It's a little, little bit like, you know, it reminds me of Kanye West. He has this one song where he goes, I made Jesus walk, so I'm never going to hell. <laughs> it's so funny because it's like Kanye West is an asshole. 
he made one song called Jesus. This is, he, he said that on a track, like a little bit before he made these, like now he's gone full gospel or whatever. But a couple of albums ago, he, he still made rap music and it was not Christian and he was an asshole. But he had made this one song called Jesus Walks. And it had like a little bit of a gospel vibe to it. And he talks about Jesus on the verse and he goes real hard and there's curse words and everything. But, but, but the logic of that one line I made Jesus walks, so I'm never going to hell. It's so funny because it's, it's like uh, you can be an asshole forever as long as you did one good thing, and <laughs> me, me being acting in beautiful thing is kind of my Jesus walks moment <laughs> where I did one good thing. Anyway, um, yeah, and that's a thing where I actually think I did a very good job, dude. I did a very good job in that performance and. Like people, a lot of people cried and people came up to me and afterwards, I remember my friend Amy Jo came up to me afterwards and was like, at the time her kid Jaden was like maybe eight or nine. And she was like, her face was all teary and, and uh, she was like, one day I'll have those conversations with my son when he comes out. And yeah, it really spoke to her and, and I did a British accent for the whole thing and I did end up with a British girlfriend afterwards, the old Jacqueline Faulkner. She she saw me in that play, and then we dated a little bit, and she was British, and that also vouches for my 100% solid certified British accent, I would say. But um, there is a recording of it. So this is unlike the murder mystery thing, where I'm happy that there isn't a recording. Here's what happened. We do the play... There's a videographer. They record the whole thing. And then a couple of weeks later, so I'm dating Jackie Faulkner for a bit, but then like two, three months later, the videographer is still working on it, still hadn't cut it together. She was just a fucking lazy bum, if I'm being honest with you, but but she hadn't put it together, so I was still waiting for the tape. And I mean, I wasn't, wasn't pestering her about it all the time. I was just kind of waiting. But then a couple months later, I start dating this girl, um, this Taiwanese girl that I later was engaged to. And she had a sort of on and off boyfriend at the time when I met her. More off again, like it wasn't really her boyfriend, but he was still into her and they had broken up and it was kind of recent. And and then some, maybe that was also because of the play. Anyway, some girl invited me along um, for dinner because she said that her friend was single and she kind of wanted me to set her up. She wanted to set me up with her friend. So I go to dinner with like these three Taiwanese girls at this sushi place, Kota's Kitchen in Shanghai. It might still be around. Great Japanese food. And we get one of those Magnum bottles of uh, sake. So fucking good. And then they, they um, when you don't finish the bottle, they let you keep it. And they put your name on it. So the walls are covered in half drunk bottles that with people's name on them. So then we came back the next week and had another one. But So I start dating this girl immediately it goes very well we're not going to get too explicit but like there was a little bit of kissing even on that first day and then I like see her again we're hanging out all this stuff and then I realized that her ex-boyfriend who is still in love with her is the DJ at the bar logo and which I mean logo look man out of iconic bars in the universe, in anyone's universe, there's nothing more iconic than Logo because Logo is this place where me and all the French guys would go every single day 
for months, maybe years. Like, it was one of these, it's almost like the pre-cell phone era where you don't make plans, you just go to Logo, and and then everyone is there, and then you can kind of check in with everyone what's going on that night, and you can go somewhere else, but like 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 7.30, 9.30, like that sort of early evening period, you can always be at Logo. And then if you're at Logo at midnight and 1 a.m. and stuff, then maybe you kind of didn't. You should have gotten some bigger plan going, and maybe you were a little bit lazy, but... Logo was where it was at. And then I realized that this guy, the ex-boyfriend, and so I'm not going to say people's name on the podcast anymore, but he's a public figure. So I'll say his his artist name was something like Acid Pony. It was something about Pony. So this guy, uh, he was real hopping mad that I was now trying to date his girlfriend. And honestly, I was very much of a bystander in this whole thing. I didn't really do anything. It was just some girl came up to me and asked if I wanted to go to dinner with her to be introduced to her friend. And then me and the friend start hanging out. And then there's, I know that there's some DJ now who's mad at me, you know, some French DJ. It's always like some French DJ DJ is now mad at you. So, oh yeah, I'm not going to say his name, but everyone called him Superman because he looked kind of like Clark Kent. (laughs) Oh man, that nickname is definitely courtesy of the lawyer. Um, so every time I went to Logo that era, it was like, I mean, it was awkward because I was kind of dancing and he was DJing and and I pretended like I didn't know what was going on, but I knew what was going on and I knew that I was being an asshole, but I was just kind of gloating, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest. I was just like this guy who was so satisfied with the whole situation because everything was coming up Erickson, you know? Um... But the point of what I'm saying is that one of the best friends of Superman slash Pony something was the videographer girl from the play, from Beautiful Thing. So suddenly the tape is gone. And then I email her six months later and I'm like, hey, did you ever get that tape? Like, could I, could I see that performance? You know, I'm kind of interested. I want to see what it looks like. Nothing. And now it's been 10 years, still never got to see that tape. And I mean, is that tape deleted or is it chilling on some like forgotten hard drive at the bottom of her closet? I don't know, but I I think I might never get to see it, but I might try one more time because now it's been maybe 12 years and maybe water eventually goes under the bridge. You know what I'm saying? But um, yeah. Um, you know, speaking of not saying names, I think the last person's name that I'm going to say on the pod is Yoyo Ulsson. Last episode, I talked about Yoyo Ulsson. And I just have to add one thing to what I said last week because I had a revelation. So last episode, I talked about how Yoyo Ulsson is this character that me and other people, we make fun of him for self-promoting too much, for putting out shitty material, for not being ashamed of himself, for doing everything poorly, for being a clown. And then the fact that we make fun of him Uh, triggers a lot of things in me because I'm afraid of being a clown. But what I also said out loud without realizing it in the last episode was, I'm afraid of a public space where it's possible to be humiliated and where your humiliation is final and where there's no coming back from being humiliated. And when you think about it logically, that's never true. That's what I said in the last episode. It's never true that you're just humiliated in a final space and now there's no recourse there's always a way to come back from stuff but the thing is 
and I didn't even remember this while recording last episode, Yoye Ulson had this experience where he was humiliated in a way from in a way in a way where he never recovered. Because what his actual origin story, what actually happened, what actually happened to him is that he was sort of doing freelance, writing a lot of stories, kind of getting a name for himself, putting getting stories in dog and industry industry. I've lived and I've lived, yeah, but in America, Anyway, he gets a couple of stories going, and then he lands a job interview with a real Swedish newspaper. And this is his eight mile Eminem style make or break moment. You only get one shot to blow. Mom's spaghetti. Living in your mom's spaghetti. Mom's spaghetti. This is your one moment, you know? And he's out with it. He's living in Beijing. He is about to meet the correspondent of, and you know what? I think it was either Doggins Industry or Doggins Nyheter. One of the two. He has a job interview scheduled. The night before, he goes out drinking because he's a big party kid, Yoyo Ulsson. And then, <laughs> here's what he does. He's out drinking night before his interview. And he has this idea for a prank where the guy he's out drinking with, he's going to send that guy to the interview instead of going himself. That's his idea. And he does do that. The guy goes, pretends to be Yoyo Ulson. And then later he sort of realizes that that wasn't a good idea because this was his M&M, eight-mile-make-or-break-mom-spaghetti moment. And he realizes that it wasn't a good idea and he sends an email to the employer and he's like, look, I'm sorry, I was drinking, we came up with this plan while I was drunk. I take it all back. I'm sorry I sent my friend. I, I want a second chance. And hey, guess what? These crotchety Swedes... Slash serious weeds. You know, depends on how you look at this story. The serious weeds don't give him a second shot. The serious weeds are like, are you fucking insane? <laughs> We're not going to give you a second shot. And the not giving him a second shot ripples out, not just from that editorial board of that newspaper. It ripples out all across the micro community of Swedish media. Because here's the thing. There aren't that many Swedish, established Swedish newspapers, online, offline, you know, video, print, radio, all of it. It's kind of one community of journalism. Swedish journalism is one world, and it's really only a couple of hundred people. And they're all very, very connected on Twitter, and they're all following all of each other. And they're all really laughing at him and this experience. And that's his origin story, because that's how he was permanently shut out from becoming an established real journalist. Like, that's what happened to him. And there's something about me that, I mean, this story triggers so much in me because I can really see it from his perspective because I really like sort of absurdist, nonsensical, not that funny to anyone type pranks. And doing the pranks in a very serious space where you're really not supposed to do a prank, that's like my favorite space to do a prank. And I can really see myself doing that prank as stupid as it is. Like, I, I can't, but I can. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't, especially not now when I'm a little bit older, but I can really, I can see how it can happen. 
And when you do that prank, your life is ruined forever. Because Yo-Yo Olsen's dream was to become an author and journalist in an established world way and have that pay the rent. And he permanently shut himself out from that. And there's something about me where I am afraid of being a clown forever. <laughs> and it's very much like... I think, um, honestly, running away from Sweden and running away from whatever the Swedish world of something is and um, deciding to just not, you know, this podcast isn't in Swedish, for example. Um, maybe part of that is fed by that fear, the Yoyulson fear, because I don't think it's as true that you can, in an equally final way, be have your... <laughs> you can't... There's no English language, one singular totalitarian, you know, monolith world that you can be shut out from in the same way as how the monolith of Swedish state radio. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fucking Yoyo Wilson, man. And the thing about it is that I also realized when I was thinking back on this, I've only met Yoyo Wilson maybe once, uh, once or twice, but... The guy that he sent to pretend to be him, whose name I luckily can't remember, so I won't say it on the podcast. I've met that guy many times. And that's the guy where I've, because I, I've only met Yoyo Olson, where we like have been in the same room and greeted each other, whatever. I don't know him. But the guy that he sent. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway. Um, I think we're going to go on to the sparkling water now, and then we're going to reveal the winner of the sparkling competition. So today we're doing a little bit of a sparkle four. Hold on, let me get the water. All right, y'all, so today we're doing the fourth installment of our grapefruit sessions. I believe each session has been three grapefruits, so we're up to 12. We got some good ones today. We're going to start with the shittiest one. Or like what I have the lowest expectations for. It's called Soleil. So on the can, there's this little sign on the side that says Signature Select. So this is very quirky because there's a Signature Select grapefruit flavored sparkling water. But then there's a also a Soleil by Signature Select grapefruit flavored sparkling water. You see what I'm saying? What's the difference, bro? Safeway, you can't have one in-store brand. It's also like if you're going to have two at least name them different things. Don't write signature select on both of them. Like, what are you doing? Anyway. Ooh, smells like grapefruit. Always good. Always good. Got a good fizz to it. Let's see. Oh, actually smells really nice. Really like 9 out of 10 smell. Oh, man. You know what? Safeway, your budget brand here. This is very nice. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. It's got a uh, sweetness to it, actually, that's um, compared to the other grapefruits. It's got quite a bit of sweetness. It's um, it's just very nice. Good, strong, aggressive, manly bubbles. I might just refill my cup and do a little extra sip there. Yeah, you know what? Hey, let's not, let's not be dishonest here. Let's not be biased. That's like an 8.5. Uh, very surprised. Next one. So this one... I don't even really know what to call this. It says Polar. It seems like Polar is a very short name, like Polar Bear. There's a bear on the logo, and it's called Polar. 
Jesus, those aggressive bubbles from that Safeway one, really, I'm, I'm burping, I'm burping already. Family made since 1882. I don't know what's going on here. Where's this from? Polar seltzer. Wow, it's a New England thing. Okay, that fucks with it. 100% natural seltzer, calorie-free, ruby red grapefruit. All right. Ooh, kind of like a sideways, sideways bubble there so far. Let's smell it. Ooh, okay, way less sweetness is what I'm expecting on this one. Way more zesty, rindy, way more like peel-oriented. Ooh, really good. Wow, this is silly. It's silly to review three of them and love all three. But yeah, this is very good. Ooh, polar seltzer. That's surprisingly good. Grapefruit. I mean, maybe grapefruit is... Um, Maybe it's not that hard. Man, this one is really nice. This one is more natural. Very nice. Yeah. Um, 8.5. Now, here's the really tricky thing. Third one. What we got here is Topo Chico Twist of Grapefruit. Carbonated mineral water with natural grapefruit flavors. So the thing with um, Topo Chico, it is mineral water in the sense that there's 15 milligrams of sodium per per bottle there's some there's some calcium there's some salts in it you know what i'm saying there's some citric acid topo chico is not just straight water um the thing about it is people love topo chico and i love topo chico it has the most the topo chico bubble is a complete gobsmacker it's the best and i really love plain topo chico and then now for the first time i'm going to try the grapefruit version and I'm looking at this bottle, and I've never tried this before, but this could be my new favorite. Like, expectations are that this has potential to be my new favorite sparkling water, all categories. Because, you know, I love the citrus stuff, grapefruit. I mean, it might be a little bit overrated in some senses because everyone goes for it, but it's it's good. I mean, grapefruit is delicious in sparkling water. And you got Topo Chico doing it? I mean, I'm a little bit nervous. This is like, you know, when you got a first date with someone where you really think it might be it, you know? Ooh, interesting quiet, quiet crack there. So this is out of a glass bottle, you know, green glass bottle. Get out of here, man. It's the best. Ooh, you hear that? That's the sound of destiny. Ooh, no smell. Ooh, what if it has no smell? Then it's the best soda water I've ever had. Oh, wow. Huh. So that doesn't taste like grapefruit. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I almost can't taste the grapefruit. It's very salty. Like, just compared to, I don't think this is more salt than a regular Topo Chico, but just after drinking the previous two with no salts added, no calcium, no sodium, this has a very forward salt flavor and very little grapefruit going on. Let's, let's have another sip, everyone. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is not my new favorite. I mean, it's good. It's definitely an 8 out of 10, but 
it's maybe somehow it's a little bit as if it's less carbonated than regular Topo Chico. Um, it's almost like something with the grapefruit juice takes away a little bit of that. They're really going for maximum carbonation in a regular Topo Chico. Yeah, anyway, it's an eight. I'm very surprised. Both the Soleil from Signature Select and the Polar Seltzer, they were better. I'd say they were better. But, you know, hey, I'm not shitting on it. Eight out of ten is great. It's just that this episode, we just happen to have no bad ones. You know, today I bought a can of coconut-flavored sparkling water. Everyone has tried LaCroix coconut, and everyone agrees that it's awful, and it tastes like sunscreen. And because of that, you know, we only really have three rules here at the podcast. Rule number one, don't put the cup on the table that the microphone arm is fixed on because the vibration of you putting your cup on that table travels up the arm and gets caught by the mic and creates a noise that's not pleasant. Rule number two, don't say people's real name. Rule number three, we're never doing coconut. But today, secretly, I bought some coconut. We might do a coconut episode where the whole point of it is just that it's not good. Question is, who is the best roast comedian in this in this world? Who should I have on for a coconut episode? Hmm. Might put that poll on the gram, see what the people say. Um, all right. I think that's the that's the fourth installment of our grapefruit reviews. And now we're gonna tell you the winner of the competition and then we'll go straight to credits and the episode will be over. You know, because that's how they do it in America. Because if you tell them right away the cliffhanger thing that they came to the episode for, then they're going to friend zone you. And we're back. So now I have constructed a box made out of LaCroix cardboard boxes, sparkling water boxes. Not all LaCroix, you got some aha. And then I have arranged nine names in a perfect circle. These are the nine names of the people who guessed correctly. And we will put the dog in the box and we will put a little piece of fresh baked focaccia on every name. And then we will lift the box straight up and then the dog will pick one of the names. Now, I've been thinking like, is there gonna be one winner? Is it gonna be multiple winners? I'm gonna let the dog decide. If the dog very clearly picks one winner, then we're doing one winner. If the dog like, yeah, question from the audience. Does every winner get $20? Someone is definitely getting $20 in an envelope sent to their home address. Any volunteers, Jules? Will you put the dog in the box? Mm, well, so Marissa, will, will you box. go around and film all the names? And read them out loud for me. Just Donna. Get. Donna. Ebo. Ebo is like some Danish guy. Amethyst. 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 I know in real life. James. Trinda. Ivan. <laughs> Sheila. And last but not least, we got Julia. Yeah, and I was telling the folks earlier that I paid about $30 to Facebook advertisement to have this advertised across America. And therefore, some of these people are housewives from Texas and Florida. Anyway, all right, uh, put the dog in the box. Well, she's got to sniff the focaccia first. This is the moment, folks. Oh, my goodness. Oh, shit. Is she trying to break out? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Push her in. Push her back into the box. Just lift the box straight up now. Right now? And run Three. away. Three, two, one, go! Yay! <laughs> Sheila is the winner. Yay! Wow. And then Julia is number two. 
the winner was Sheila. And then Julia might also win something. We'll see. And then Donna. Oh, she's just going. She's just going. Did you think she was going to stop eating? No, but she's just going clockwise. Yeah. She's well, not going random or anything. All right, folks, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks for can listening. I Sheila, can I call Sheila and tell her that she won?